the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Friday end of the week edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us again today and uh, hopefully all week. You can follow us at danprofshow.com. Get podcasts of the program as you can on Spotify and iTunes, at least for now. And uh, on social media, at least for now, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Uh, Joe Biden, yesterday's prayer breakfast. Uh, again, being very clear about what the Democrat Socialist Party's angle is with respect to impeachment 2.0 with respect to these culturally oriented executive orders that have been issued on uh, transgenders in sport on critical race theory instruction in the federal government and in any institution that takes money from the federal government and so forth the political angle the gaslighting that is being attempted by the democrat socialists in this country we just have to open our eyes We've just witnessed images that we've never imagined, images that now we'll never forget, a violent assault in the U.S. Capitol, an assault on our democracy, on our capital, a violent attack that threatened lives and took lives. We know now we must confront and defeat political extremism, white supremacy, and domestic terrorism. For so many in our nation, this is a dark, dark time. So where do we turn? Faith. Kierkegaard wrote, faith sees best in the dark. I believe that to be true. (laughs) If you can get over the hilarity of Joe Biden quoting Kierkegaard for a a minute uh, and suggesting that he could actually uh, connect those thoughts, uh, he actually inadvertently provides a tell. Turn to faith, not Catholicism. No, because that's not his faith. Uh, Kierkegaard. The father of existentialism, the, uh, uh, the leading light for existential nihilists, perfect to invoke Kierkegaard unintentionally, I'm sure. He just liked the quote. It sounded good or some speechwriter thought it made him sound smart. But that's exactly right, because existential nihilism is their faith. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Victor Davis Hanson, classicist and historian at the Hoover Institution at Stanford and uh, author of the Second World Wars, how the first global conflict was fought and won, as well as the case for Trump. VDH, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Dan. Uh, I, I open the floor to you to comment on Kierkegaard and Joe Biden, two names I never thought would be in the same sentence. But um, uh, beyond that, domestic terrorism, uh, white supremacy, uh, 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 political violence. These are all very generic categories, it seems to me, that are being rinsed and repeated by the left as the means to herd all the deplorables into them. Yeah, I think it, they tend to have these never let a crisis go to waste. That's what Newsom said, Pelosi said, Hillary said. 
And, you know, sometimes a real crisis, like there was an assault on Capitol and there was a Katrina and there was a meltdown, but the reaction to it is soon warped for political purposes. Sometimes the psychodramas are completely made up, the Jesse Smollett, Duke LaCrosse, Covington Kid. But they have this repeated pattern, George Floyd, Michael Brown, one tragedy then opens up a Pandora's box and they go, you know, they just, everything comes out, all these agendas. So why we're worried about this non-existent threat of a, a huge white alt-right white supremacist sedition insurrectionary movement. He's pushed through in the first three weeks, the most radical agenda we've ever seen by the very means that he condemned Donald Trump executive orders. And that's what it's all about. It's sort of plain preemptive offense uh, to get the Republicans, you know, angry or paranoid or frightened. And then while we're doing this, nobody looks at the agenda. One other thing, I think all of us, and I think some of us are wrong when we thought Joe Biden was an empty vessel. He is that, and he was a virtual candidate. He was that to carry this hardcore agenda across the finish line, and then he would melt away if his use is over with. But I think he really believes that as a one-term president, he's liberated, and Mm -hmm. he's going to get back at Obama, and he's going to be the one that did the progressive agenda in the way Obama never did. And he doesn't have any fears of re-election. He doesn't really care about whether they win or lose the midterm. That's somebody else's problem. But through executive orders and with the Congress for two years, he's going to go down in the annals of leftist uh, heroes as somebody who really did fundamentally transform America the way that Obama's promised but never quite finished. I think that's a really good point about him being freed from electoral considerations. Uh, um, the Republicans not so freed from electoral considerations, one would think, and I wonder how much importance you place on their efficacy in responding to this story that is being driven, you know, agitpop, Bertolt Brecht style by the left, that it was an insurrection and uh, it was an attempted overthrow of the government and essentially the Republican Party was complicit. Uh, It wasn't just uh, deplorables. It wasn't just uh, white supremacists and all the other boogeymen. It was also Ted Cruz and Josh Howley and Kevin McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene and everybody else. Well, I have two reactions to that. One is the people who understand what the left is doing are trying to get the truth out, but it's very difficult when the left now on this long march through our institutions controls the media, social media, Silicon Valley, Wall Street, professional sports, entertainment, academia, K-12, so that it's hard to get that narrative out. But there's another problem, I think that's what you're alluding to, that a lot of people uh, feel they can virtue signal on our side, the right or Republican or conservative side, and then they're sort of given a pass from any criticism and they're considered heroic and they're never symmetrical. So why we're they're lecturing all the Republicans on this danger of white supremacy, they're not talking about a hundred days of riot, mayhem, and arson and looting that was given a complete pass by the left, whether it was burning down a precinct in Minneapolis or a federal courthouse in Portland, or Joe Biden saying, you know, this is and keep us just an idea, or Camilla Harris saying, you know, this is gonna go on and on and nothing you can do about it. And let's bail these people out and then Nobody's talking about that now, and the, the right should be saying, you know what, we deplore this, but this was one day, and we deplored it. None of you deplored this. In fact, you sanctioned it. You contextualized it, and yet, so when somebody doesn't do that, I say to myself, they're scared, they're afraid, they're trying to make a Faustian bargain with the left that yes. won't work, 
and they're hurting the cause, and I don't have much respect for them. Well, I, I completely agree, and, and, uh, and you know, people are afraid because you're, you're going to be tagged as somehow rationalizing, as you said, what happened on, on January 6th in terms of the, the violence portion of it, and nobody, no rational person, no reasonable person is doing that. But you have to, it seems to me, you have got to fight back against this narrative that what happened on January 6th was the Battle of Algiers. I mean, it's just ridiculous and if you don't, then what you're going to have is a left that successfully marginalizes the entire Republican Party and all the coalitions uh, that form uh, that form it as the new Confederacy. Yeah, I mean, and, and what's weird is I, I replied on television lately to Michael Beschloss, who made that argument that you're referring to, and it's there's no quantification. This is 9/11. They say it's it's worse. Okay, where are the three thousand people who died? Where was the systematic conspiracy that we knew that was able to hijack four planes? This was a buffoonish effort of a bunch of losers who went in and went crazy for a couple of hours, and tragically, four or five people died. But even then, we don't get the information. If it's really a sedition, why don't they have a commission that comes out and says, this is how this young woman died. This is the person who shot her. Here's who he works for. This is why he shot her. Here's how the, the tragic incident of the officer was killed. Here's who did it, and just get out all the facts instead of just jailing people without bail, and there's a lot, on misdemeanor charges. And so that's what they need to do, and the more transparency, the better. And I think if we do that, we'll understand that there was probably a hardcore group of people. There were anarchists that joined in. There were buffoons that joined in. But it wasn't a systematic attempt to take over the government. And it could have been easily stopped if we had just minimal preemptive security. And that's another uh, investigation that needs to be done. And so, yeah, and then where are the retired military who warned us when Antifa burned the St. John's Church and was threatening to go onto the White House grounds, and Trump felt the Capitol Police either wouldn't or couldn't keep the White House safe? He said, we might have to use the National Guard or federal troops. They said he was basically Mussolini and suggesting a coup. And now we have 30,000 troops, and many of them haven't left. In the Capitol, 20,000 are still there. We haven't had one retired general come out and say, this really worries me that the Pentagon is running the security of the U.S. Capitol. When we come back, I, I want to get your review of uh, how you think Kevin McCarthy handled this uh, difficult week with uh, both uh, Liz Cheney and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, as well as a preview, get your preview of uh, impeachment trial 2.0, which starts next week. More with Victor Davis Hanson. He is, of course, classicist and a historian at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, author of The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won, and The Case for Trump. We'll be right back. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're pleased to be rejoined by Victor Davis Hanson, classicist and historian at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, author of books including The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won, as well as the case for Trump and uh, VDH. I wanted to get your review of uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's handling of the uh, uh, 
discord within his caucus over Liz Cheney and the vote that was taken, ultimately uh, confirming her uh, continued presence and leadership. And then, of course, the vote that was taken that stripped uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the freshman Republican from Georgia, of her committee post. That was always going to happen because the Democrats have the majority. But in both cases, uh, you know, you had uh, 60 Republicans vote against Liz Cheney staying in leadership for her vote on impeachment, as well as her statements on Trump's impeachment. Um, and, and, and 11 vote with the Democrats on stripping Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments. But it seemed to me that that difficulty was navigated fairly well by McCarthy, as was impeachment with 10 House Republicans voting to impeach the president with the Democrats. You've got uh, some never Trumpers in the caucus. Understand that you got some loyal Trumpers in the caucus who want to uh, exact punishment on people that uh, go afield like Liz Cheney did. But at the end of the day, uh, we need to McCarthy's position. We need to navigate that. We need to get past that, hash out our disagreements, take your positions, but then refocus on the challenges ahead, both in terms of what the Biden administration is doing, as well as what we were talking about before the break, the gaslighting that the left is doing about us that we need to challenge if we're going to have a chance to take back the House in November of 22. Well, you described it better than I could. Kevin McCarthy is the congressman from the next district over from mine, and I've known him, and he's a He's a pragmatist, but he's also a conservative. He's not a Paul Ryan by any means. So what his strategy is, is that we came within, we, he thinks the Republican House members came within, you know, 10 seats. They've got almost a, a even split and they can win the House next time if they're smart. And they're, he's trying to hold together uh, two, two factions. And then the middle is pretty solid and he's trying to do what he has to do within limits. And I think he's done a good job, and he thinks he can win the House next time and stop the socialist revolution. And that's his primary agenda. And, yes, he's angry at Liz Cheney, and he should be ang- angry at Liz Cheney. And he probably thinks that uh, Green is sort of a problem that he has, that he has to deal with that as well. He's trying to balance the two. But he knows that if he goes out and gets rid of Liz Cheney, then that gives 20 days of free publicity about how the Republican Party is dead. It's crazy. On the other hand, if he goes out in complete support of Green, and a weird quote comes up from his past, her past, excuse me, and it's just a very hard current to navigate. And I think he's doing a pretty good job. Uh, With respect to uh, impeachment that starts next week, the the clear indication from Trump's legal team is that uh, we believe we have an acquittal in our back pocket. We know we do from Rand Paul's straw vote. So we're going to accept victory and move on as quickly as possible. And then President Trump can resume his platform to say whatever he wants to say about election irregularities or any other topic. But we're not going to uh, use the venue of the Senate to prosecute those claims. Yeah, I think that's that's what the Republicans are saying. I think they've got the votes to back up the rhetoric. I think they're getting ready, I think, to warn the Democrats that if Biden continues and somehow Trump can be more uh, judicious in his criticism as sort of an shadow minister, and then they get other people in the Republican Party on the MAGA agenda, and they get a viable opposition to what's coming. And what's coming is going to be worse than what we've seen. It's going to be really scary. And it's going to be structural, not just policies that are going to be try, uh, changed. Then they're going to have a really good argument in, in the next two years. And I, if I were the Democrats, I'd be very careful because they've established precedents that a, a Republican House could follow. They could immediately point a special counsel and say, you know, we've never really adjudicated what Hunter Biden was doing. Where did he get the money? Who's the 10 percent? Who's the big guy? 
Maybe if Biden did some things that uh, Trump did, they could file articles of impeachment. They could do a lot of things that the Democrats did. And the Democrats are setting new precedents that's predicated on the idea that changing demography or their control of the media or their money advantage makes them exempt. But I'm not sure that's true if the American people get angry, as they did in 2010, for example. So it's always stupid to change the system when you think you're going to be in control of the system forever, because once you set that precedent, your opponents will use it against you. And they, I don't think they understand that. Uh, so something else I wanted to get get to just sort of a stop look and listen from you on, and that's, of course, the the uh, purge that's going on at the hands of big tech and corporate America, even more so than government. And this is sort of remarkable. Ron Johnson, senator from Wisconsin, writing in the Wall Street Journal just in terms of you know how quickly this is uh, being ratcheted up. Uh, YouTube took down Senate U.S. Senate Committee testimony, Committee of Homeland Security testimony, from a, a doctor on coronavirus therapeutics. He presented evidence at a December hearing regarding the use of ivermectin, which, by the way, based on recent trials, the NIH has changed its guidance uh, from uh, negative to neutral based on the successful trials of using ivermectin as a therapeutic for COVID infection. But these videos of his testimony before Ron Johnson's committee in the Senate were taken down by YouTube. Ron Johnson writing, the censors at YouTube have decided for all of us that the American public shouldn't be able to hear what senators heard. Apparently, they're smarter than medical doctors who have devoted their lives to science and the use of skills to save lives. They've decided there's only one medical viewpoint allowed, and it's the viewpoint dictated by government agencies. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little I'm of two minds on this because I'm a little sick of hearing people in positions of authority like Ron Johnson just complaining about things like this, like they have no power to do anything. But on the other hand, maybe they don't have power to stop this. I don't think they do. I think what we've seen is this long march through the institutions is almost over. And they control social media in Silicon Valley. That's 60% of the world's communications. And they, 90% of all the searches are controlled by Google, and they're predicated on political considerations and the way they order their results. We saw Mark Zuckerberg pour $350 million into pre-selected precincts to warp the vote. Now, I'm not even getting into Wall Street or traditional media or network news. So it's an electronic octopus, and it's squeezing us, and it's, uh, it's everywhere. I know that I'm a minor person, but at Stanford University, I've been brought up at the Stanford Faculty Senate for the crime of uh, writing too many negative things about Joe Biden. <laughs> and they just, they've destroyed my colleague, Scott Atlas, Yeah, uh, because, he, because of his advice. It was scientifically sound. I've had uh, videos taken off because they didn't have the correct take on the Vietnam War. It happens to all of us, according to our station. And we always knew that the progressive left was fascistic. But we, when you told people that, that Margaret Sanger and Woodrow Wilson had those tendencies, everybody got angry and said you were nutty. Now they're in control, and we're seeing that they want to turn social media into a state ministry of truth. They want to change Wall Street. They want to use cancel culture and investment. They want to search your bank account. They want to do all the things that good fascists do. And if we don't stand up and say, stop it, I think it'll continue. I don't think it has public support. It's sort of a it's a big wave. But if somebody just stands up and says, "Have you no decency?" in the way the Army Council Welch did, Robert Welch did to McCarthy, I think it would stop. It would dissipate because people are sick of it, but they're scared because they know that this cat has to be belled. But the first mouse to go out there and put the 
the bell around the cat's neck and warn everybody when it comes is going to be devoured. So hmm. nobody steps forward. BDH, class assistant historian at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, author of books including The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won, and The Case for Trump. Victor Davis Hanson, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for take, having me. Take care. It's a nice day to start again. Come on, it's a nice day for a white wedding. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.